I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We shall be looking together at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. The parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. As a biblical preacher, I'm committed to preaching the text, to deriving the sermon's points from the text. And I have done work so hard the past 36 hours, to the best of my ability, trying to draw lines from this text to the Kansas City Chiefs. But I am unable to do so, okay? So I'll just have to on the front end get this out of the way and say, how about those Chiefs? Was that not like the greatest game in the history of professional football? Uh, It it was a riveting roller coaster ride that ended in oh so sweet a way. So I don't know, I'm not going to name it and claim it, but it does feel like this year the Lord is with the Chiefs. It feels like we could go all the way this year, okay? So let's continue to uh, support our team accordingly. The parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, beginning verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Twenty gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, so I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance." But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Father, we bow in this moment of worship. And Father, as we have already communicated from this pulpit, we do so now in prayer as well. 
Today is a day of commitment, of consecration, and we pray, Father, that our hearts would be drawn nearer to you this hour in a sustaining way throughout the semester, that we would not stumble into the chapel and stumble into the classroom and stumble around this campus underdignifying the calling that is ours. To study here, to serve here, to be a part of this covenantal community that is giving our very best efforts for your church and for your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray now that this parable itself would deepen that sense of stewardship we have in this place for us personally and for us institutionally. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this spring semester, I and a number of my colleagues will be bringing sermons on the parables of our Lord, and I look forward to hearing so many of them preach and receiving the word as they bring it to bear in our lives. This parable, quite clearly, is a parable that speaks to stewardship. A parable that speaks to stewardship. Sometimes, reductionistically, we think of this parable merely in the terms of money what we are to do with financial resources that the Lord has given to us. And clearly, money is central to the story, and money is central to our stewardship. But this parable, I believe, presents for us a broader lesson in stewardship, indeed lessons in stewardship, that we will do well to hear this morning. Many of us a couple of decades ago, we're, we're jarred when we heard John Piper preach a sermon and then produce a book entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. And he challenged us and awakened us to this deep sense of stewardship we have and to give our lives for the cause of Christ as opposed to the American dream of material gain and pleasure and a glorious retirement and enjoying the glory of our golden years, humanistically speaking. And so we are reminded from this passage, as we were reminded by Dr. Piper, that life is stewardship, ministry is stewardship, leadership is stewardship. We all have a sacred trust. I was reminded of that again in recent months, reading a book entitled 4,000 Weeks. And if you think about it, uh, it's a, a simple mathematical equation that if the average person has about 78 years to live and they're 52 weeks in a year, you do the math, 52 times 78 is about 4,000 weeks. And I was struck by the fact 4,000 does not strike me as that many weeks. Especially as you think about how casually we motor from week to week and weekend to weekend, moving through rather briskly those 4,000 weeks. But of course, none of us are promised 4,000. For some of us, this could be, for all of us, this could be our last week. Some may have 4,200 weeks or 4,500 weeks or who knows 5,000 weeks. But the reality is life is short. Time must be stewarded. And to do so in a way that is distinctly spiritual and Christian and biblical, not that is humanistic and material. Indeed, even our secular neighbors have caught on to the fact that life is brief. Hence, the advance of the bucket list. Life with FOMO, fear of missing out. That is not who we are. It's not who we're called to be as men and women of Christ, is it? Of course not. We're called to have a kingdom mindset, a spiritual stewardship, a biblical worldview that teaches us how to live, how to lead, how to serve in light of eternity, which is set in our hearts. To learn this, this morning we see a parable. And is it not a gripping parable? 
To read it is to not need a whole lot of explanation. It is pretty straightforward, and the lessons are, are pretty clear. What's a parable? Some of us learned in Sunday school that a parable, as we were told, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning told by Christ. There are worse definitions, I suppose. We see Jesus in the Gospels, the master teacher, teaching masterfully through these parables. He tells a story, deploys a metaphor, an analogy to make a spiritual point. And in so doing, he goes from black and white to color, from defining to describing, from explaining to illustrating. And every time he does so, it is an act of grace, but also an act of judgment. Matthew 13, Jesus tells us that these parables, we are told that these parables both reveal and conceal, both soften and harden based upon what God is doing in the lives and the hearts of those who hear. Parables are both a sign of judgment for some and a sign of grace for others. The same, eye, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay, and so it is with these parables. One key to understanding parables is not to overthink them or overinterpret them. We're not to look for meaning in every little subpoint of the parable, every subpoint of the story, but generally parables come with, with a, a primary lesson and maybe a couple of attendant lessons that are appropriate to draw from the text. Here in our passage in Matthew chapter 25, we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel in the Olivet Discourse that contained in chapters 24 and 25. So named because Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, there opposite Herod's temple. And in these two chapters, Jesus is speaking about his return, about end times. And in chapter 24, a lot is compressed in there. And it's one of the more, more challenging chapters in the Bible to understand what is happening and when it will happen. But then towards the end of chapter 24, now at the beginning of chapter 25, Jesus begins to speak in parables to further make his point about when he will come and what we are to do until he comes. In other words, the stewardship of waiting, the stewardship of time. And he says, first, I may come sooner than you think. Chapter 24, come as a thief in the night. And the point is, if you know when a thief is coming to your house, you're ready, right? If you know a thief is coming Thursday night at 3 a.m., he probably won't be very successful in entering your home, right? But you don't know, and so you're to be ready all the time. And Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming, and so we are to be ready as we wait. He could come sooner than any of us imagine. But then he transitions and says, you must be patient as you wait because it could be much longer than you think. And so hence the parable of the virgins. And now the parable of the talents. We are to wait, but we are to work as we wait. And so these parables have complementing themes teaching us of our posture, our posture as we wait for Jesus's return. And so he's saying he may come the very next minute. He may come the next millennium. We don't know. We are in that in-between time, and we are to be ready. And so the parable begins. Look with me in verse 14. I want to walk through this parable, giving explanation to key points, and then at the end of it, make a number of observations about the text, and then, and then a few points of application for us today. Verse 14. 
For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. The it is the kingdom of God. The it is the kingdom of God. So he's saying, we as citizens of that kingdom, as followers of Christ, this is how, how we are to be living our lives. It is like a man about to go on a journey. The journey is Christ away while we are waiting. Who called his own slaves, we are those slaves, and entrusted his possessions to them, this concept of stewardship. So the picture is a master's about to go on a journey. He, he calls his own slaves, and he trusts, entrusts his possessions to them. In other words, we are included in the it. What about this man? We don't know a lot. We know he's very wealthy. We'll get to the depths of that wealth here momentarily. He is very, very wealthy. He has possessions that are great, and he's going on a journey. This journey clearly has some time, months, perhaps years. It's long enough that it would be horrible stewardship for his money just to sit uninvested or unstewarded. That, that money has to be used. It has to be put to work, we might say. He's on a journey. And he calls his slaves, his slaves to him. It's this Greek word doulos, word for slave, one who has no rights. Now, some of our translations use the word servant, given the stigma associated with the word slave. But I think the word servant undercommunicates who these individuals are. And thus, if we're not clear about their status as slaves, it will undermine the strength of the parable, which we'll see momentarily. So he, he, calls, he calls his slaves to himself, but we need to think about this word slaves for a few moments and make sure we understand what's going on here, and especially because we tend to think of slavery in the American context, right? We think of that type of slavery that originated with man-stealing in West Africa and that characterized America pre-Civil War. In the New Testament here, there are key distinctions between the slavery then and our more modern understanding of slavery. Two major distinctions and several minor as well. The first distinction is how one became a slave. In the ancient world, one became a slave in two primary ways. One was through military conquest. The Romans came, the Romans conquered, the Romans took back some of those conquered people and enslaved them. Secondarily, oftentimes due to indebtedness. There were no bankruptcy laws or bankruptcy provisions, so you go in debt and you can't pay your debts. And as that, as that gets exasperated and time sets in, one may be sold into slavery as a payment for that debt. Or what is more, maybe one's whole family is sold into slavery. Again, this is unlike American slavery that originated via man-stealing in West Africa or the children of those who've been born to those so captured. Secondly, slavery in the ancient world was not ethnocentric. Slavery in the ancient world would emer it did emerge in virtually every ethnicity. If you are conquered, you may be enslaved. If you're in debt, you and your family may be enslaved. Of course, in American slavery, it was indeed ethnocentric, focused on Africans or those whose ancestors were African. Third, in the ancient world, slavery may not always be brutal, at least not as brutal as the American context. In fact, we get a sense of that from this parable, don't we? Sure, 
In the American context, some masters might be not quite as cruel as others, but altogether it was a brutal, cruel enterprise. In the ancient world, depending upon one's master and one's responsibilities, the slaves may have enjoyed a a higher standard, some marginal freedom to operate day to day. And fourth, in the ancient world, slaves often therefore held major responsibilities on behalf of their owners, and we see that here. Well, how does that happen? Well, think about it. You may have a, a person that has a training as you know, an ancient accountant or ancient businessman or some skill set. He goes in debt. He gets sold into slavery. He still has that knowledge, that experience, and so the master, the owner may take him and put him to work and actually give him positions of real authority, and that's what we see here. Think of it by way of illustration, a little bit like uh, a little bit like that movie Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne, remember, he's in prison, and uh, but he he's this brilliant guy, mathematically, financially, accounting, and he winds up like managing the investments of of uh, of the overseers. He manages giving uh, tax advice to some of the overseers, and so he has this skill set. Though he's in prison, and they put that skill to work. And so in the ancient world, you may have a person who, who's capable, a capable businessman, but they fall into slavery, they fall into debt, they're sold into slavery, and their skills are used profitably for their owner. One footnote, some have looked at this parable historically and said, well, this is a biblical affirmation of slavery, but I believe that's absolute nonsense. Slavery is used as an example here, but not as an affirmation. It's no more an affirmation of slavery than the example of Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. Verses before is an affirmation of theft, of burglary. So the point is, when you think of these slaves in this, in this story, think of them almost acting like a power of attorney for their master who's away. They're in charge of the household, the businesses, the finances. They are stewards. And you see the connection, right? We are slaves of Christ. We have no rights, but we have great responsibility. We have no rights, but we have a heightened stewardship as those owned by the king. Notice verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. We sense it's a distant journey. We don't know precisely the time, but it is a delayed return, so much that the money has to be well stewarded. So what's a talent? What's a talent? We tend to think of talent these days like an ability or a gifting, right? We, we think of it in terms of an athletic ability or a musical ability or an academic or artistic or financial ability. Some gift one has that, that this better or, or that, that that's tends to be better than, than what is commonly experienced or commonly had. It's he's talented, she's talented. In scripture, as is here, a talent is a unit or a measurement of weight. And when applied to gold or silver, it becomes a measurement of gold or silver that thus is defined by an amount of money. The specifics vary contextually, but but we can speak of this in rough terms that, that, that really helps us to understand what's going on here. So let's say in this context, a talent typically weighed 75 pounds, not ounces, pounds. And it was most commonly that of silver, sometimes of gold. Let's think of it in terms of silver. 
Recall in Jesus' day, a, a, a denarii was a, was a day's wage, right? Well, one talent of silver equaled about 6,000 denarii. So a talent then equaled about, a talent of silver equaled about 6,000 days wages. About 20 years wages. Now, if it were a talent of gold, it would be roughly 20 times that. So again, to translate this into 2021 terms, let's say if we're dealing with talents of silver here, five talents would probably be about $5 million. Two talents, about $2 million. One talent, about $1 million. It's a lot of money. Now, if it happens to be gold, which it may be, it would be five talents equal about $100 million. We're talking like athlete money, Patrick Mahomes money, every penny well earned. <laughs> We're talking $100 million, $40 million, $20 million, an enormous sum of money. So verse 16. Immediately, the one who had five talents, he goes and he traded with them and gained five more talents. The word traded is important. Uh, There was no Dow Jones Industrial Average, no S&P 500. This is not a passive investment taking place. He's going out and conducting business, perhaps buying a business, perhaps starting a business, something that took effort, that took industry, that, that took skill. And he's able to double the money. What a great return. Verse 17, the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more of the same thing. This is not a passive investment. Actively trading, actively maneuvering, working, buying, selling, starting, creating, boom, doubles it. A remarkably high level of return. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, that was not an uncommon way of securing one's possession in the ancient world. And if you think about it, there are worse things that one could do with that one talent, 20 years wages at least. He could have squandered it. He could have invested stupidly and lost it. He could have spent it on himself thinking, well, maybe the master will never come back, but if he does, then I'll just you know, pay the piper when I face him. Could have ran away with it, stolen it altogether. But he goes and buries it. He doesn't even put it in a CD, local bank. Not alone. Not, not, he doesn't even get a little interest. He seeks to save everything, but it costs him everything. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came, and he settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Now, note here carefully. The slave has an appropriate sense of pride and what he has produced for his master. You entrusted me five. Again, you didn't give me five. You entrusted me five talents. Here I am. I have doubled that. 
his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You're faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter to the joy of your master. You have been found faithful. And so you wonder, my goodness, this is so much money. Five talents. Minimally $5 million, perhaps $100 million if in gold. What more does he have? We get the picture that this master is like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, all these ultra-wealthy individuals rolled into one. And our master is, isn't he? I've entrusted this to you. I shall entrust more. Verse 22. Also the one who had received two talents came back and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. Again, an appropriate sense of pride and stewardship. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things into, into the joy of your master. The one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man. In other words, Master, this is your fault. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You gather where you do not scatter seed. In other words, he's shrewd. And I was afraid... And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered a seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have at least received my money back with a little interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one who has 10 talents. Do you see how indignant our Lord is over unfaithful stewardship? Do you see how our Lord deals with, in this parable, those who are not faithful in little things? Now, there is an insidious thinking that slips into churches sometimes, all too frequently, and it goes something like this. I know we know he or she hasn't been faithful in little, but maybe if we give them a lot to oversee, then they'll be faithful. I literally have heard conversation in churches like, you know, Bill, he's just not involved. He doesn't come that often. You know, he's, he's just not here. But, you know, maybe if we make him a deacon, he'll get more involved. And, and like, you're like, like what, what? Like, you know, my head almost explode when I hear that. Like, what, what are you thinking? That is contrary to Scripture. That's the opposite. Jesus is saying you don't give people... Uh, greater stewardship, hoping to pull them up. No. Start with the small. See how faithful they are. Then perhaps you ratchet it up. Now notice verse 29. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away, throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, you get a picture that if a person can be such a bad steward, not that they lose their salvation, but as an indication, they do not know Christ. If their time, their money, their energy, their resources, et cetera, et cetera, one doesn't have an interest in stewarding those for the kingdom and for the gospel of Christ, period, may be a sign that the life of Christ is not in them. Now, here's where we see, coming full circle in this parable, we see why it's important that we're clear that this is a slave. These are slaves. 
These are not servants. They are not employees. They are not like hired money managers who are simply underperforming. And so, okay, we're going to find a new money manager to invest our money. No, slaves must obey. Slaves must obey. And so the master is indignant because he gave specific words of instruction what to do with it. And the first slave fulfilled it. The second slave fulfilled it. The third slave took it upon his own to think he had better judgment than the master and one did his own thing. So what does the parable mean? The master clearly represents Jesus while he's away. We represent the slaves waiting, longing, stewarding, serving. The talent represents all that he has entrusted to us individually and the straightforward meaning is that we are stewards, and it is a customized stewardship. There's an accountability that we have, not just that we could be, but that we will be held accountable for our stewardship of what the Lord has entrusted to us. And I speak this morning to hundreds in the room and beyond the room, and that stewardship, again, is a customized stewardship. I believe we see that in these verses where the Lord has entrusted to each one of us specific gifts and abilities and experiences and opportunities and all the rest, and that we are responsible for those. I want to make seven observations about, these, about this passage and then I'll pull it together with a few words of application for us. Opera observation number one, the owner knows the slave's gifting and expects behavior and results accordingly. Did you notice that? Notice in verse 14. Then verse 15, he calls them in. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. The master knows these slaves. He knows their ability. And the one he gave five, he had high expectations. The ones he gave two, he had nearly as high expectations. The one who gave one, he knew there was a propensity not to follow through and to be fearful. And so he just gave them one, but gave an opportunity nonetheless. If God has gifted you greatly, don't be embarrassed by that. Use that for his glory. If God has given you a mind that can think clearly and express and articulate clearly, don't be embarrassed by that or shy. Lean into that gift for his glory. As God has given you the ability to preach and teach in a way that is extraordinary, don't be shy about that. Use it for his glory. If God has given you an income that's off the charts, don't be embarrassed by that. Use that for his glory. Observation number two. Two slaves are appropriately proud of their accomplishments. I love this. Notice it. When they come back, the one who gave five talents, verse 20, says, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have gained five more talents. We don't get a sense that it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's pride in a sinful sense. We get a sense of it's, it's an appropriate sense of gratification that he had met his master's expectations. And he's grateful for that. He's even in an appropriate sense proud of that, the same way with the one who got two. The two came back. See, verse 22, I have gained two more talents. If you accomplish much for the kingdom of Christ, don't be proud about it. 
don't be prideful about it, but take an appropriate sense of kingdom pride that God is positioning to do something extraordinary for him. And in this place, this institution, we have many individuals who are highly gifted, and I take pride in you and in your gifting, the way the Lord has positioned you. And we do our best for our faculty and others who serve here to position you to flourish in a way that demonstrates and that, and that showcases that gifting God has given to you. Observation number three, poor stewards make excuses. Notice what we see here. This steward comes back, the slave comes back at one talent, and look, it is the master's fault. It is the master's fault. What does he do? He doesn't produce a return. He shows up. He spent the, the intervening years refining his excuse why he'd done nothing. And it could be fear. Yes, clearly he says he's afraid. Who knows? It might be he's lazy. He doesn't want to get out of bed and go, and go work. He was, maybe he, he, was, he was not entrepreneurial, not because he's afraid. He says he's afraid. Here, fear's clearly some part of it. Maybe he's just like, he doesn't want to put in the effort. Whatever's going on here, he, he is short on returns, but long on excuses. That's what poor stewards do, don't they? If only the elders are more supportive. If only my church is more loving. If only the deacons are more receptive. If only my, if only my spouse valued my ministry. If only my kids weren't so needy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Poor stewards always make excuses. Number four, the slave also, the irresponsible one, fails in thinking his part is too hard, that his contribution is not worth the risk. You see? This is too difficult, and so whatever return I may bring back, that return is not worth the commensurate risk I will have to take. Because I got to tell you this morning, whatever God calls you to do, whether you're serving as a layman or laywoman or pastor, one in vocational ministry, missionary, whatever, whatever he calls you to do, it is more than worth the risk. It is more than worth the risk. Lean into it. Fifth observation, our waiting for Christ is not a passive undertaking. He may return in the next minute. He may return in the next millennium. That's what we see here Jesus is saying. Be industrious while you wait. Sixth observation about this passage and then about ministry as a whole. Jesus speaks sharply here toward one who is insufficiently ambitious for the kingdom. When I was in seminary, I was told often something like this, don't let your talent take you where your character can't keep you. And boy, that was good advice. I say that to you this morning. Don't let your talent or your gifting take you someplace that your character can't keep you. I would put another word of exhortation with it, though. And it would be something like this. Be busy seeing where God wants to take you based upon the talent he's given you. Don't be a hypothetical minister. Don't be a one-day minister. Don't be a would-be minister. If God has called you to serve him, be actively exploring where and how and when he wants to use you. Seventh observation, and this is clear, and I've already made it, but stewardship is serious to our Lord. So serious that a rejection of that stewardship here, and altogether rejection of that stewardship, indicates lostness in this parable. 
Now, I want to pull this together with two buckets of application. The first is personal, and then the second is institutional. Number one, personal. I want to challenge us to view all of life as one of stewardship. Your treasure, the gospel, your calling, your gifts, your time, your money, your education, your words, see it all as stewardship. Along those lines, for those who are here preparing for ministry, see, that is stewardship, understanding in an Ephesians 4 sense that Christ is gifting his church with those who will serve it. And so if you really believe that that Christ is building his church and Christ is gifting his church with individuals and you're a part of that gifted group because you're called out, then be busy about realizing that and leveraging your energy for that. Along these lines, at the personal level, realize you are already on the clock. Your stewardship may be taken to a new level after you get your diploma, but it is not suspended while you are getting your diploma. You're already on the clock. Along these lines, don't be insufficiently ambitious. Channel that ambition in God-honoring ways. In other words, don't underdignify how God has made you and how he's gifted you and how he's equipped you and what he wants to do through you. I say here with a particular word of focus to our students this morning, if you aren't serious about honoring Christ in your life and stewarding your life, this isn't the best place to be. Because here the cupboards are full with world-class faculty who love you and who give of themselves to you and are committed to you. And if you are nonchalant about the kingdom of Christ and what he's calling us to do, that's not a good place to be because you aren't stewarding well all they're giving to you. And that could put you in a disadvantageous position as it relates to this parable and the stewardship expectations we have before Christ. Last personal word of application. There is a pattern here of kingdom promotion. And I remember as a younger man in ministry, I would think sometimes when you see a guy go from pastoring a church of 200 to 500, I, you, I would think kind of critically like, well, they're, they're just church hopper. They're just going for a bigger church. And sometimes people are church hoppers, right? And that, that is not to be commended. But maybe it's that they have been really faithful in that church of 200 for five years. In fact, they've been so faithful that God wants to elevate them and give them a greater stewardship so they can bring that faithfulness to a broader, greater realm of, of influence. You see, there's a pattern here. Now, I want to speak a few words of application to us institutionally here, the communal, the collective stewardship we have. How are we stewards? First and foremost, we are theological stewards. We are doctrinal stewards. From 1856, when Southern Baptists first began to speak in clear ways about theological education to the year 2022, we have an uneven history about how faithful we have been doctrinally. Seasons, even decades of great faithfulness. Seasons, even decades of great unfaithfulness in that regard. Our calling is to take the long view past, present, and future as it relates to our doctrinal stewardship. We don't merely adhere, we advocate. We don't dance near the lines. We don't make flirtatious statements. Doctrinally, no, we are clear, and we are to be clear. There's a doctrinal stewardship that we own on behalf of Southern Baptists in this place. We do so willingly and wholeheartedly and happily. There's a missional stewardship 
We've been talking about For the Church for 10 years, then in recent years about our undergraduate program at Spurgeon College, that For the Kingdom vision. And we continue to emphasize this great mission that we have and continue to talk about it and to cultivate it and to project it. And we'll continue to do so because it is a great mission God has given us. There's an operational stewardship in this place. We know, those of us who track higher education know, that the future of higher education in America is on questionable footing. We here in our generation are called to be faithful, not just for our time, but to position this institution for greater faithfulness for the years that come, for sustained health for the years to come. And so we will continue to operate, to, to pursue operational faithfulness. And then comprehensively to each one of us who serve here and for those who study here, comprehensively, we all are stewards. And I say to you without one whiff, of, without one whiff of, of inauthenticity, every person matters. You can be the lowest paid, most part-time employee here, your work matters. You can be a faculty member, a higher paid administrator, your work matters. You can be a new time student sitting in this chapel for the first time, your studies matter. Regardless of where you are in this institutional nexus, regardless of where you are, you matter and you are a part of that stewardship. It's a glorious work God has called us to do, and it's amazing that we get to do it. I was beginning in ministry many years ago in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, serving a little part-time internship in the church where I was then a part of Dolphin Baptist Church. And uh, there's a pastor there who, who's very dear to me, was and is very dear to me, by the name of Steve Lawson. And uh, he was the pastor. I was dating the young girl who became my wife, Karen, and we were just dating then. And, um, and I noticed that um, at, at our church, we, we had a, a lot of, of, of kind of young men who were pursuing the ministry, probably eight or 10 of us who were thinking ministry. Many of these guys were religion majors in college and, and pursuing ministry. And and the pastor was, was very generous with his time for all of us. Um, for all of us, he was generous with his time. But he, he decided to start a little internship um, for, for me, which was a little part-time, 20-hour-week position. And so it was kind of like of, of the 10, he asked me to be that intern. And for me, it, it was like, man, I'd just been asked to be you know, head of a missions organization or something. It, it seemed so big at that time. And I was just so grateful to get to do it. And I was a senior in college now, and I left my basketball team to, to pursue ministry. And it, it just felt so good and right, and I was so eager. And I, I did ask him, I said, well, why'd you pick me? There's like 10 guys in the church who could do this. Why me? And and he said to me, he said, he said Jason, because um, I believe in you and I believe God's going to use you and I want to invest in you. And he said to me, he said, if a man has $100 to invest in business, he wants to invest it in the business that's going to bring the best return. So yes, I'm giving you an opportunity. I'm giving you additional time, but I'm doing so because I'm expecting you to bring a kingdom return. All of us in the room, in our own way, are recipients like that. Parents have invested, churches have invested, Friends have invested, Southern Baptists have invested, and all of us are here as recipients of that stewardship. We have an entrustment, and it's our call in our generation to be faithful. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning, for this passage, and for the call to stewardship and faithfulness. Help us to do just that this semester and for all the years that follow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.